for our scripture reading today, please turn to page 6. For Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you this Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard, just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness? Understand, then, that those of faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, The person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. La lectura de esta mañana está en Gálatas capítulo 3, versículos 1 al 14. Gálatas torpes, ¿quién los ha hechizado a ustedes ante quien ante quienes Jesucristo crucificado ha sido presentado tan claramente? Solo quiero que me respondan a esto. ¿Recibieron el Espíritu por las obras que demanda la ley o por la fe que aceptaron el con que aceptaron el mensaje? Tan torpes son, después de haber comenzado con el Espíritu, pretenden ahora per, perfeccionarse con esfuerzos humanos, tanto sufrir para nada. Si es que de veras fue para nada, al darles Dios su Espíritu y hacer milagros entre ustedes, ¿lo hace por las obras que demanda la ley o por la fe con la que han aceptado el mensaje? Así fue con Abraham. Le creyó a Dios y, es, y esto se le tomó en cuenta como justicia. Por lo tanto, sepan que los descendientes de Abraham son aquellos que viven por la fe. En efecto, la Escritura, habiendo previsto que Dios justificaría por la fe a las naciones, anunció de antemano el Evangelio a Abraham. Por medio de ti serán bendecidas todas las naciones. Así que los que viven por la fe son bendecidos junto con Abraham, el hombre de fe. Todos los que viven por las obras que demanda la ley están bajo maldición, porque está escrito, maldito sea quien no practique fielmente todo lo que está escrito en el libro de la ley. Ahora bien, es evidente que por la ley nadie es justificado delante de Dios, porque el justo vivirá por la fe. La ley no se basa en la fe, 
Por el contrario, quien, quien practique estas cosas vivirá por ellas. Cristo nos rescató de la maldición de la ley al hacerse maldición por nosotros, pues está escrito, maldito todo el que es colgado de un madero. Así sucedió para que por medio de, Jesu, de Cristo Jesús la bendición prometida a Abraham llegara a las naciones y para que la fe y que por la fe recibiéramos el Espíritu según la promesa. Well, we are continuing in our thorough study of the book of Galatians, this ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a network of different churches in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor, in the region of Galatia. And we are now moving into chapter 3. So we're going to take a look at that and see what we might learn. All right, let's pray together. God, we are asking that you would come and be present so that our time together would not be in vain. Uh, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us because we need your help to understand not only with our minds, but also to receive with our hearts, with our lives, what you have in store for us, all that you have in store for us in Jesus, communicated through these words. And so please come, please come. In Christ's name, amen. What is faith? Maybe you've wondered what faith is as you have been invited to consider faith, and yet the person speaking to you didn't explain exactly what they meant, maybe assumed that you would know what that meant. Maybe you've been on some sort of a journey of faith for a number of years, and yet when you're asked that question, you really don't even know exactly how to respond how to explain what it is that you are supposedly exercising in your relationship with God. What is faith anyway? See, for many people, faith is nothing more than irrational belief. Uh, you know, faith is like believing in unicorns or in the tooth fairy. You know, faith is believing that Elvis just really might be alive. Tupac is alive. Uh, faith is uh, leaving the real world and living in a dream world. Uh, faith is not only unnecessary, it's actually sometimes dangerous. See, but the Bible in the New Testament here has a different conception of faith, a different way of defining it, different way of presenting it, a different way of inviting us into a life of faith. See, according to the Apostle Paul in the passage we're looking at today, faith is how you get right with God. Faith is the way you experience God's presence and his power. You see this in the language and the uh, mentions, the, the mentionings of the Spirit of God several times in the beginning of the passage. Faith is the key to starting a relationship with God. Ten times in different word forms, the Apostle Paul talks about faith in this passage. Sometimes it's translated believe or belief. At other times, it's translated faith. It's his main theme. What does it mean? 
So we're going to look at three words, I think, that might help us. Three key words that we encounter either directly or indirectly in this passage to try to help us answer this question of understanding what faith is. And those three words are, first, trusting, secondly, seeing, and thirdly, hearing. Trusting, seeing, and hearing. So first, trusting. Faith at its essence, in the way that the Apostle Paul is inviting us to put our faith in Jesus Christ, he says, is inviting us to a different way of putting our trust in him. See, sometimes when we hear the word belief, what we normally think about is just head knowledge or a cognitive kind of assent, like I know some facts and I nod my head and therefore I believe. Or when we hear the word faith, we think of something more ethereal, something more wispy that's hard to grasp, something more spiritual, we might say. But a phrase that's found in verses 10 and 11 that Paul is using to contrast with faith is actually very helpful. Where he says, and the translators use these, these words, that, that you're relying on things besides Jesus Christ. Because faith is a way of relying on something or someone. Faith is putting my trust or my confidence in someone or something. I'm giving my all, I'm giving all of myself, mentally, emotionally, volitionally, my mind, my heart, my will, my decisions. I'm giving all of myself to this thing or this person. I'm banking on them. I'm really relying upon them to become something, to be something for me. In other words, it's something like sitting on a chair. You might say, what do you mean? Well, anytime you sit in a chair, you are flinging a whole lot of confidence and trust upon this small little object. You may not have noticed it, but I just exercised an enormous amount of faith in this chair in sitting down. You see, on the one hand, sitting here involves knowledge. It involves knowing generally that a hard surface and a back and firm legs work for sitting down. That generally four legs are better than two legs. It's drawing upon sort of a track record of other chairs that I have experienced so that I can say there's a pretty good chance here that this puppy's going to hold me up. And so based upon that knowledge, and I don't have to be an engineer, I don't have to be a furniture designer. I don't have to have been the craftsman or craftsperson or the robot that put the thing together. But I know enough. I have sufficient knowledge to take a seat. It involves knowledge, but it also involves emotions. You say, well, what are you talking about? Didn't look like an emotional experience. Well, it kind of was. See, because if the chair were to fail me, fall down or it crumbles beneath me, well, that would be a pretty embarrassing experience, maybe even a painful one. See, but if the chair does its job, and let's say I just limped in from running a marathon, which I haven't and never have, 
but with sore legs, we're looking for a chair to sit on. Well, then I'm counting on this to give me a whole lot of relief. You see, either way, I've banked a piece of my happiness on this chair coming through for me. I've given it not just my mind, I've given it my heart, haven't I? Dear chair, you're not going to put me to shame, are you, in front of all these people? A little bit of knowledge, a little bit of emotion, and of course it involves commitment. That by actually sitting down in this chair, there's a sense in which, can we even say, I have submitted myself. I have surrendered myself to this chair. I have given myself and put all of my weight on my rear end and lifted my feet up. And I said, chair, it's all of me or it's none of me. You must hold me up or I will fall to the ground. I've given my will to the chair. I've given myself to the chair. Do you see, dear friends, the way that Paul is talking about faith is he's talking about putting our trust, our confidence, our dependence upon something or someone. We're leaning on, we're counting on, we're depending on, we're relying on someone or something for a sense of significance. For a sense of ultimate happiness, for a sense of acceptance before God, before myself, before the world. A sense of self-worth, a sense of being valuable. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And so the question, of course, is, what are you sitting on for dear life? What is your faith plugged into? What are you putting your ultimate confidence in? Such that if that chair were pulled out from underneath you, your whole life would fall apart. What is that chair? Do you understand the way that the church, sorry, the way that the Bible talks about the nature of faith is not that it's something new that you have to conjure up that a person doesn't have and now in becoming a Christian newly has, but rather it's something that every single person has in something or someone already. Where is your faith? What are you relying on to make you right with God? What are you putting your trust in for a sense of acceptance or beauty or significance or worth. All throughout this passage here, the apostle is telling us that by nature, we all put our trust in the things that we do. We have talked about this again and again over the last couple of weeks. The works of the law, whether if it's religious ceremony, religious activity, whether if it's pristine morality, Or anything you do that you think will make you more right with God or right with other people. That's one way to live. That's one thing we all naturally put our trust in. In verse 10, it says, all who rely on the works of the law, however, are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. It's a word of compassion. Yes, by nature, we all try to derive our sense of confidence and personhood and identity on the things that we achieve and accomplish. But the reality is it doesn't work. Paul says it straight up in verse 11. 
Clearly, no one who relies on the law, the works of the law, is justified or made righteous before God. You see, because the problem with living by the law is that you have to do then everything that God requires. Because He doesn't grade on a curve. If you want to accomplish it by your own strength, your own effort, if you want to earn your way into God's pleasure, if you want to manufacture your own self-image, if it depends upon you and what you do, you'll be under a curse. First of all, a curse in the sense that you just will not ever measure up to God's standards. See, just when I start to think that I've done a little bit better at managing the things that I do before God, the law pats me on the head for my good behavior and then says, well, don't forget about your motives and your inner attitudes too, because that counts as well. And just when I think I'm doing better with different moral laws that I feel like I might be breaking... Maybe I'm not hating on my roommate as much, or maybe I haven't kicked the dog recently. You know, maybe I'm actually not stealing or lying as much as I used to when I was younger. Well, the law then pats me on the head for my sins of commission, as it were, that I'm getting over, and says, well, but don't forget about the things that you haven't done. Not just the things that you used to do that you're now overcoming, but how about the things you haven't done, what many people call sins of omission, like going out of your way now to love your roommate and not just withholding conflict. Maybe going out of your way to promote the well-being of someone you've considered an enemy and not just not picking a fight. And just when I think I've improved on my own private life, my own private stuff, the law pats me on the head and says, well, don't forget about the public stuff as well that God desires of you. Like seeking justice for the poor. Like making this whole world a clear reflection of God, the maker of all things. We just don't measure up. We think we do, and we'd like to believe that we do but we're under a curse, the condemnation of God. But also we're under the curse of just constant, daily, insecure living. Exhaustion. Defensiveness. Slavery to the latest thing that you've accomplished and the quiet understanding that it's not yet enough. The apostle is telling us, look, this is one thing, one way that you can live. This is what we most naturally put our faith in, our trusting in ourselves and our actions and our works of the law. But here he offers a new way. A faith that is in Jesus Christ. A putting our trust in what he has done. Banking on what he has accomplished As with a chair, knowing what he has done and giving my mind to him, feeling the proper affections of hope and joy and love towards him and giving myself and my heart towards him, but also in my decisions and my will, my commitment to him and saying, you can have all of me because you have done everything for me. In verse 13, the apostle tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
where Paul is talking about the way in which Jesus on the cross took the curse, the punishment that you and I deserved, that you and I had heading our way, that we still do deserve, took the curse upon himself for us, we're told. Not because he deserved it, but because out of love and grace and compassion, he might do it for the forgiveness of all of our sins. All of our failures, all of our wrongdoings. Putting our trust in the one who was cursed for us, but also putting our trust in the one who credits righteousness to us. In verse 9, we're told, so those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And what was the blessing that Abraham received? Well, in verse 6, it tells us Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We've looked at this before in past weeks. That if you put your trust in Jesus and all the good that he has done perfectly in the eyes of God, that he loved God with a perfect heart in all his actions, all his thoughts, all his motives, all his attitudes, and all of his desires, and loved his neighbor perfectly, every person that he ever encountered, giving himself in self-forgetfulness and other-centeredness in every conversation, in every encounter. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine that? Because we fall so short. That his record of righteousness, if you put your trust in him, now before God counts as your record of righteousness. So when God looks at you, he will now treat you as if you had done everything perfectly. And when he looks at you, he sees not sinful you, he sees the perfect glory and beauty of Jesus Christ in your place. Jesus gets cursed and we get credit. Jesus takes our curse of unrighteousness, we get credited with his righteousness. If we would put our trust in, if we would sit in that chair, if we would bank our lives on him, if we would give ourselves wholly to him. You see, what the apostle is calling us to and inviting us to is a transfer of our trust from ourselves to Jesus. From our works to the works of Jesus. From the things that we do and accomplish and achieve to the things that he did and accomplished and achieved. The invitation of the good news of God's grace is a transfer of our putting trust for ultimate acceptance, beauty, righteousness, and glory. Have you done that, dear friends? Have you done that? Trusting is the first word. Second word is seeing. Seeing. You notice in verse 1, Paul says, look Galatians, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Before your very eyes. 
Now, he doesn't mean that literally as though the Galatian people saw Jesus crucified on a Roman cross physically with their eyes, because this was at least 20 years prior to Paul's relationship with the Galatians and hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. Rather, Paul seems to be talking about something else, a different kind of scene. You see, this word portrayed in the Greek world was actually used for large for sale signs. Uh, This word portrayed was used to describe large public billboards, as it were. And so Paul is saying that there is a way in which you can see what happened to Jesus as he became a curse and took our curse and then credited us with his righteousness on the cross as he was crucified for people who would embrace him? Paul says there's a way in which you can see him as if you were standing in front of a massive billboard with that kind of sensory perception, that sense of experience and being able to appreciate the details and the vivid reality of all that Jesus has done for me. A spiritual scene, not with physical eyes, but as it says in Ephesians 1 verse 18, where the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your soul are enlightened. Where the story of Jesus crucified for our sins and for our righteousness starts to capture your imagination in a way in which a a great book or novel starts to immerse you in a world where you almost can start to see and feel and touch the things that you're reading about, right? You've experienced that with a great book. It might be Harry Potter. It might be whatever it is that you read. Or a great movie that keeps on replaying again and again in your mind. Where you feel like you're there and it even starts to pop up in your dreams. It engrosses you. It saturates your soul, as it were. Where you're starting to so soak yourself in the story of Jesus that you can start to say, I'm actually seeing before me his self-sacrificial love and his suffering love. And I'm actually seeing my own sin for which he died with greater clarity. It's graphic. It's vivid. It's, it's real. Almost as if I were standing there myself. Indeed, more real than if I were standing there myself. Faith is seen with the eyes of the heart. And a Christian, therefore, friends, is not just someone who knows about Jesus, but by faith, someone who has seen him on the cross. Has that happened to you? Not only putting trust in, but now seeing and experiencing in the spiritual sensory sort of way. Where all of a sudden the death of Jesus becomes a real multi-sensory. It's like I was right there as if I were looking at him with physical eyes sort of a way. 
I thought I knew the gospel all along, perhaps you've said, but I, I never saw it. I saw it, but I never saw it. I heard about it, but I never really saw it. And then something clicked. Because you can go to church for years and years and you can even hear the story of the gospel, but not truly have spiritual sight. And you can truly miss the point of the grace of God. Are you seeing the portrayal of Christ crucified? And are you focusing on Christ crucified? See, Paul says what you really need, what the nature of faith really is, is to see Jesus dying on the cross out of love for you. Your sin that put him there, your unrighteousness, which he takes on in exchange for his righteousness given to you. Do you understand that this is to be the focus of Christian living and growth? See, Paul doesn't say, look, you've, you've heard before you, you've seen it put before you. Good principles for living. No, he doesn't say that. Wise words that will tell you how you ought to behave. No, he doesn't say that either. Christian morality and good traditional values. He doesn't say that either. He says, I'm giving before you a picture of Jesus that your soul can savor. And this is so important, friends, as you think about what it means and how it is that you grow in your faith. If you are a Christian, this is so important because this actually is one of the key things that the apostle is addressing in this passage. You see in verse 3, the apostle is going through a series of rhetorical questions where he's addressing some concerns that he has about the wrong way of thinking he's hearing about in the Galatians. False teachers have infiltrated the community and are messing up the Galatian Christians' understanding of the true gospel. Paul says here in verse 3, after beginning with the Spirit, are you, are you now trying to finish or be perfected or be made complete by means of the flesh or human effort? In other words, it seems like the false teachers are coming to the Christians and saying, look, do you really want a true spiritual experience? Well, then you need to work a little harder. Do you really want to grow in your relationship with God? Do you want to grow some more? Well, grace is good to get you in, but now you've really got to get busy. Or maybe they were saying things like, look, trusting Jesus gets you in, but it only gets you to spiritual kindergarten. Do you want to get an advanced degree in a true relationship with God? You're in the peewee league right now. Do you want to get to the big leagues how do you grow? Try a little bit harder. Do a little bit more. Work a little bit more sincerely. Keep at it. boy. You're doing a great job. More works of the law. Dear friends, do you hear that in your own way of thinking? Most Christians... I think it's fair to say most Christians believe that I get in with God by his grace, but I stay in with God by trying my hardest. 
Most people believe that I become a Christian by trusting in Jesus, but I grow as a Christian by working really, really hard. Doing the right thing, changing myself, obeying God more, doing some more spiritual gymnastics, reading more and more of my Bible and praying harder and avoiding all these sins and doing all these right things. And I'm not saying that those things are in and of themselves bad or good. Good mostly in and of themselves. But the question again is, are you putting your trust in those things to make you right with God and to grow you with God? Paul points us to a different thing. He says, you get in with God by grace and you grow by grace as well. You start the Christian life by putting your trust in Jesus and you continue in and finish the Christian life by re-putting your trust in Jesus again and again and again. Hearing and re-hearing about Jesus. Seeing Him with new eyes and re-seeing Him with new eyes again and again and again. You never get past the story and the portrayal of Christ crucified. You never advance beyond it. You never move to a bigger league. You never get beyond the basics. The basics that are so deep and profound that it'll take all of eternity to plumb the depths of, to understand what it really means that God gave His Son to die for you and me for our salvation. Faith is seen and re-seen and re-seen. Okay, thirdly and lastly, last key word is hearing. Hearing. Verse 2, Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? In verse 5, so again I asked, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Both times those phrases can be translated more literally by the hearing of faith. See, Paul is referring to several years prior when he spoke to the Galatians about the story of Jesus. When they heard about it, when their literal ears took in these words of the gospel, good news that told them a different story, a different account of how you become worthy in the sight of God. A different way of becoming beautiful. A different way of sensing that you're significant. A different way of atoning for your sins. A different way of knowing that you're forgiven and free of guilt. A different way of being right with God and having a relationship with Him. It was through words that they heard that their faith was ignited. Faith is shaped by the words We hear. I mean, think about it, guys. Think about it, friends. All the ways in which we trust in the things that we do, as we mentioned earlier. This idea that only if I can accomplish that deed will I really be important in the eyes of myself, of other people. Only if I actually get that promotion or make this amount of money will I actually be acceptable to others. 
Only if I actually become this sort of person or that sort of person. Only if I have this many friends or this close of friends. Whatever it might be, where do those ideas about what's worth trusting in, what chair is worth sitting in, where do those things come from? But words... Some story, some account of life and what's valuable. It might have been a parent. It might have been a friend. It might have been something that you just are picking up on a daily basis from your workplace, from TV, or the music you listen to. I'm not saying it's all bad, but it is all there. We are daily and lifelong shaped by words. And it absolutely controls and pushes us in certain directions as to what we put our trust in. Maybe it was words that still ring in your head. Someone that once told you you'll never amount to anything. Maybe it was someone's account of what you looked like physically. They didn't like what they saw, and so you no longer what you see. Maybe it's someone that once said to you, you're not really that spiritual. You need to step it up a little bit. Or a person that said, you're not worth anything unless you actually become this sort of person and this sort of status in society. Friends, true trusting in Jesus starts with hearing. Words tell a story. Words give an account of reality. So what words, dear friends, are you most hearing? And if it is not God's words and God's accounts of reality and the story of the gospel... You are being filled and shaped by something else. What fills your ears? Who are you listening to? Friends, take care of what you hear. I was talking with some brothers earlier this week about, well, what do you do in terms of overcoming some area of weakness or sin? And we were talking about how good we can be at describing in a lot of detailed words of how bad we are. Let me tell you a little bit about how screwed up I am. Da-da-da-da-da. Have a seat. We've got a lot of words to share with you. And how terrible we are at having a lot of words to describe what Jesus has done for me. I'm far greater an expert of the words of sin and the words of failure and the words of curse and the words of weakness and brokenness in my life than I ever am of having my mind and my heart filled with the words of good news. So what would it look like then for those words to be uploaded, to ignite new faith? Well, for some of us, it might be cracking open the Bible for the first time and actually taking in a new account of the love of God and the acceptance of God. For some of you, it might be something as practical as putting up post-it notes around the house or around your cube, around your car, wherever you spend your days. Or maybe a note card in your pocket or maybe ink on your hands where you can be writing down and filling your minds and your hearts with new words. God's words to you. You are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are righteous in my sight. You are justified by faith in Jesus, not by the works of the law or the works of your hands. And to tell yourself that, or rather to let God by His Spirit tell it to you until it starts to shape what you see 
through eyes of faith, Christ crucified like a billboard in front of me and shapes what you trust in, what I give my life to, what I put my confidence in, what I rely on to make me acceptable to God and to other people. You see, we won't see what we don't hear and we won't trust in in what we don't see. And all these things come together in this rich package of what the apostle describes as faith. Maybe different from what you originally believed, no pun intended. Or maybe something similar with some adjustments But either way, something radically fresh and empowering for us to put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's a whole different way of living. Jesus invites you to it. He invites you to himself. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for offering to us not only the gift of your son, but also offering to us an understanding of how we can receive that gift this faith. We pray that you would show us how to replant our confidence in you. And maybe for some of us, doing so for the very first time. But we need you for this. We pray that you would guide us and help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.